It's like you buy these seeds that are resistant to these chemicals. And if you use these chemicals, you won't kill the crop, but you'll kill all the insects around it, which kind of sounds really good and fancy on the surface, but it's just not how that works out. And then when pests come around, they're going to start spraying like crazy. And unfortunately, that kills all the good bacteria in the soil even more, which creates more of a discrepancy in that bacteria and fungi ratio, which makes the plant even more sick because now they have even a harder time extracting the very few nutrients now in the soil. Then it gets even more sick. So even more pests come around. Then you got to spray even more crops. And you could only do this like so many times before you all of a sudden have dirt. You don't even have soil anymore. Welcome to the Path Podcast. I'm Mike Salemi. I believe that uncharted trails make the best life stories. So take a deep breath, put one foot in front of the other, and trust the ground under your feet. Join me in discussions on health, performance, business, leadership, and spiritual self-mastery because these topics are windows into how well each of us have learned to trust our own path. Let's go. This is a Soul Fire production. Today on the show, we've got Eugene Trufkin. Now, Eugene is a friend of mine who is a published author, podcast host, personal trainer, and checklistic lifestyle coach. And in today's conversation, I think you're going to be blown away at how much you're going to learn because I know I did as it relates to making better food choices and how to really navigate the confusion that so many people, especially in America, experience when they do their best to buy better quality ingredients and support their family with better food choices, but it can be so confusing out there. And so he breaks down a lot of the nitty gritty of what goes on in the factory farming industry, how to make better poultry choices, fish choices, beef choices. And he's got a really unique story. I mean, he was born in Ukraine, was raised off grid by his grandmother until he was approximately 10 years old, moved to the the United States and really experienced a lot of the challenges that many, once again, Americans experience as it relates to how to choose better quality food out there. And then now fast forward to today, he primarily eats a wild game diet. And so he's got a really interesting story. I hope you love today's show. Let's get right into it. First off, that documentary, Nutrition, The Dirt Facts from Paul is for anybody listening, I believe it's still available on YouTube. You know, maybe at one point it was a paid paid video or something like that. But Nutrition, The Dirt Facts, it might be a multi-part series, if I recall. One of the best lectures that I've ever heard. It was basically, uh, I mean, Paul Paul has been able to continually not only reinvent, I would say, quote, reinvent himself, but very much stay relevant. However, at that time, especially, I mean, that was like, for the times we were in, like revolutionary. But I remember when I first watched that thing, it was a massive aha. And my experience with food and especially meat uh, I mean, we would go to, and uh, at least our, our local area, there's like a Safeway or a place that used to close down called like Petrini's Market. And I remember always seeing uh, meat that was in this uh, clear, what is it, cellophane plastic wrap over in, in, in like uh, a styrofoam thing. And it's all perfect and glistening. And I was like, that's what I grew up with. And that's that was my only my only connection was with food through a supermarket, through that plastic shiny wrap. And then, of course, what you would see on commercials and things like that. And then when I had heard that, uh, and again, I don't know if this was exactly when I started buying a whole cow, but my family, I told my family, they thought I was nuts, like completely. Everyone in my family thought I was like, what are you doing going to buy a whole 
beef, a whole cow? And I was like, well, first, if you look at from the cost perspective, the amount of getting a quality piece of meat from a whole cow, I mean, it's just insane, like grass-fed, grass-finished. So just from a cost perspective and a quality perspective, it's shocking at how relatively speaking affordable is if you can go in, whether it's with yourself or with a group of people, you can go with five, six, seven people, get a whole beef, get a half beef. But we've been buying my family like a whole beef for almost, I think, 12 years. And over that time, developing a relationship with the farm and learning so much more. But you know that documentary for me as well was such a big motivating factor to get closer to the source of where my food comes from, to learn a little bit more of the story, to see how I can do so in community and involve friends and family. And then ultimately, I mean, if you get like 400, 500 pounds of meat, like the cost is pretty darn affordable. Like, I mean, when I first started buying, I think I was spending like four-ish dollars a pound for like the or three something for the highest quality grass-fed, grass-finished meat. Now, fast forward 12 years, it's probably like seven-ish seven to $8 max a pound. So it's gone up. But uh, I just want to anchor that because that docu- or that lecture was so powerful for me and was a big motivating factor to now the way that I eat now. And then I know we're going to talk a little bit about hunting, but just getting one step closer to the food that we eat. Yeah. And all those things that you touched on are an important aspect of it too. It's not like Although if it is the most important thing to you, it's okay just to kind of seek out that journey for the nutritional value of the food too, you know? But I, I, I'm i in your same boat. I try to, you know, it's kind of a belief system change that had to occur, you know, in terms of uh, my actions and decisions and what I pay money for to be more sustainable. Uh, also more of like honest work too. There's also the animal wel- welfare aspect of it as well. I, I, I really truly believe like if you eat, Kind of like an old Native American saying, if you eat the the, uh, the flesh of like a miserable animal or plant, like you eventually will inherit that misery as well into like your body tissue also. And there is an objective way of proving that through AA amyloid uh, disposition or uh, uh, buildup in the organ tissue and muscle tissue of the animal, which we'll cover as well. I'm kind of doing a research project with a professor from uh, Michigan State University currently on that. And so, so you could even objectively prove that that also has a negative impact on your health in terms of the stress of the animal and their level of confinement, especially if they're using certain, uh, the word starts with a V in the animals that also predisposes the animal to producing more of these AA amyloid proteins, which are objectively proven. Anyone can look up these studies on pubmed.gov. They've been going on even since 1950. It's not even new information. I was introduced by it by Terry Cotrin, the author of Wildatarian Diet, and then kind of researched it further, uh, further from there. Uh, but yes, totally agree. Uh, that that video by Paul Check was a big eye opener for me. To tell you the truth, that's where all the confusion began. Because I'm like, okay, I need real natural food. This should be easy, and it'll take me a week to find out where to get all this real natural food. That's at least resembling exactly or close enough to what my grandmother or what I was raised on, basically, in short. And I'm like, this is going to be a one-week project and I'm going to be done. And fast forward about five, six years, I'm still not done, you know? So so that's that's how also ridiculous it's become in the U.S., even for someone that's well-intentioned to make these decisions. It's just, it's become so difficult to do so because of the industrialization of the food system 
very difficult, even when your intention is to do so. Right now, from your vantage point and from my vantage point, it is probably pretty easy. But that's after years of trial and error, getting confused by all the logos. Also, you got to take into consideration that our circle of friends probably helped us fast track that, you know? But many people don't even have that in their family, in their circle of friends, no way in their freaking corporate coworkers. You're going to run into anyone that knows anything about this topic. So you're, you're totally basically lost. Even I was lost and I grew up on that ranch. Plus I had the uh, community of, of more health conscious friends than, than what normally people do. So I'm um, like, this is going to be a week. You know, it turned out not to be a week, turned into two weeks, then two weeks turned into two months, two months turned into two years. And I'm like, shit. So I want to fast track. Um, I want to fast track it for your listeners so they don't have to spend five plus years. And I'm still on the journey, but at least they can get to my place just within a solid few months. And you could already be there. And I'm happy to give this information away for free. I could easily charge just for a consult call for this quite a bit. But I really genuinely just want to help people and it doesn't really matter for the financial gain of it. So I'm just going to tell them exactly what I did from category to category. My journey first, category food group to category food group. And you're welcome to shine in too, um, because I know you, you've definitely had these challenges yourself for sure. It's not like you go from eating factory farm junk to like just legit pasture raised meats like overnight. It doesn't happen that way. And I'm going to go over the steps of how I transition and what I learned from each transition too. So we can start with, with sourcing like high quality eggs, which is actually where my journey started. All I wanted was freaking the same eggs that my grandma had on her ranch. And that is actually a pretty confusing category to source high quality food because there you have a myriad of labels. You have no label, you have the cage-free label, you have the free range label, you have the pasture raised label, then you have pretty much each of those categories, organic or non-organic, GMO or non-GMO, and then a, and then a few other tiny uh, labels like humanely raised. Also, now they even have like 100 square foot of space certified and like a myriad of other labels that, that basically uh, soy-free, corn and soy-free. So let's just kind of go over these. Like for listeners, I mean, just off the bat, you definitely want to stay away from no label eggs. So these are typically like Kroger, you know, I would stay away from those guys for sure. Uh, just stay away from them, especially if it doesn't have any um, like organics. Caged operation is definitely not going to be organic. You know, a lot of these hens, unfortunately, are, are stuffed in a little shoe box. You know, three or four of them are in a basically a shoe box their entire life. It's about a two year lifespan before then they're processed into usually soups. So people can't like visually see uh, how bad the, the meat tissue looks. You know, they kind of process it into soups or, or dog food as well. And, you know, they're fed heavy amounts of uh, corn and soy, which are definitely genetically modified, grown with a myriad of, of biocides, biocides being like synthetic pesticides, herbicides, whatever they have to use on that crop production field in that part of the world to sustain that, that monocrop. Obviously, with the monocrop situation, too, you're getting an inferior crop because there's no way you can enhance, build a superior nutritional crop in a monocrop environment, right? So if they're not getting those nutrients, you're not going to be getting those nutrients in the eggs as well. And Eugene, is, is that because of in a monocrop environment due to the soil that doesn't get rotated and things like that? Or is there something else? Can you share more on that? It starts with 
lack of balance in the soil because it's not very, uh, it's not, not, not very, it's just not sustainable to grow a single crop, uh, like acre on acre on acre of land. So for listeners, I mean, nowhere in nature do you have like a monocrop environment. You can literally go outside anywhere and in any one little batch of land, you'll see like 50 different plants, like a myriad of different birds, countless different insects, maybe bigger animals as well, trees. Uh, remember, there are like 11,000 varieties of grass. You know, a lot of times grass looks all the same, but there are many different species of grass. And all of these different species of, of plants help create a sustainable ecosystem for that given environment. When you kind of take that out and you grow like a lot of single crop farming systems, you know, you have like acre and acre and acre and acre, usually of soy and corn. It's, it's, it's very draining on the soil food web because in any plant you have a specific ratio of bacteria and fungi for that specific plant. And that kind of sets up the ripple effect for how the food, uh, how, uh, how the soil food web looks in that specific rotation. And when you have just that one kind of ratio, it kind of extracts just certain types of minerals and vitamins too often. And then it creates deficiencies of that in the soil, which create a ripple effect down the chain of the soil food web, which kills certain organisms. And then the plant becomes weak. And what's nature's way of getting rid of weak plants? Nature's way of getting rid of weak plants is sending in pests. Pests wouldn't come around if, uh, if the plants were healthy. So obviously, with these huge industrial agricultural operations, the, the farmer's not going to change their, their style because they've already heavily invested financially through buying very expensive machinery, buying God knows how many gallons of all these synthetic chemicals and also these GMO corn and soy seeds that are genetically modified to resist those chemicals. Because usually that's how the chemical companies make their money. It's not so much off the seeds but they sell it as a combo pack. It's like you buy these seeds that are resistant to these chemicals. And if you use these chemicals, you won't kill the crop, but you'll kill all the insects around it, which kind of sounds really good and fancy on the surface, but uh, it's just not that, not how that works out. And then when pests come around, obviously the farmer's not gonna change their ways. They're gonna start spraying like crazy. And that's just gonna kill the soil. And unfortunately that kills all the good bacteria in the soil even more, which creates more of a discrepancy in that uh, bacteria and fungi ratio, which makes the plant even more sick because now they have even a harder time extracting the very few nutrients now in the soil. And remember all these chemicals, they kill a lot of that, a lot of the uh, microorganisms in the soil also, which the plant relies on for its nutrition. So then it gets even more sick. So even more pests come around. Then you got to spray even more crops, and uh, you you could only do this like so many times uh, before you all of a sudden have dirt. You don't even have soil anymore, you know. And then all of a sudden, that's it. You can't grow anything on there. And I think like the last time I looked into it, the U.S. has already depleted close to forty five percent of its farmable land. That was going to be one of the things as you were sharing that that I'm so curious about. Like, where are we now, and how much? potential damage has been done. Because I think one of the things that many people, and I'm speaking also of my younger self as well, did not really realize, uh, you know, that's why Paul checks lecture nutrition, the dirt facts, like uh, the soil and the dirt is so responsible for the health of our food supply. And so I didn't know, and I was really curious, yeah, where are we at right now with the current methods? And so 
to your knowledge, we're about 45% of farmland that has been just completely devoid of nutrients and is just like basically wrecked for lack of a better term. Is that right? Exactly. And I kind of looked at that uh, statistic maybe like two or three years ago. It's probably just slightly worse at this point, knowing how things are headed. And also like for the listener, I mean, it's important to kind of look at the world as an apple, right? And if you shave off like 70% of the surface of that apple, that's like the ocean. Obviously, you can't farm anything there unless you do some deep sea farm fishing. And then if you shave off half of the remaining one, that's just unfarmable land for one reason or another. So you're really left with about 15% of the surface of the earth that's able to be farmed. And all the huge metropolitan areas are always built in the most fertile of lands. So that immediately eliminates like half of that space right there. So really you're stuck with about, you know, like eight-ish percent or so of the surface value of the earth that's able to be farmed for food. So it's not even like that much of the earth. You think you have like so much land that's available to be be farmed for food, but it's really not. And the the little we have left is, is really being depreciated quite quickly. And the irony is a lot of these industrial operations they're, one of their marketing things is this is how we feed the world in a sustainable way. I'm like, dude, it's the, like the least sustainable way imaginable, uh, especially when you don't uh, take into consider- consideration animal animals into the production cycle, such as what would happen at a biodynamic type of farm. Because a lot of times people are really confused, but if they visit a farm, they'll they'll really quickly be able to tell, you know, all all grains, beans, lentils, especially like vegetarians, they're like, we eat all this stuff are like the least sustainable crops to actually grow uh, because they're all grown via monocrop. No one grows those on a commercial level in a biodynamic operation. I mean, you can check out maybe Demeter certified, uh, Demeter.com, and you might find a sprinkle of operations in like Western Europe, maybe. And I'm kind of stretching it there, but basically no one grows those biodynamically at a uh, at a commercial level. Um, so. Those those products, any type of monoculture, which is basically all food that vegetarians would rely on and factory farms too, you know, really depreciate the quality of the soil very, very quickly. They're responsible for the bulk majority of the rainforests going down in the Amazon. A lot of that is used for ethanol, though, but a tremendous of it is used for um, for factory farms, too, which I'm not a proponent of either. And. Going back to, you know, the the hens being fed these grains, so you see they're nutritionally uh, inferior grains, plus all of this damage they're causing on the back end, you know, to the environment. And the taxpayer is always responsible for cleaning it up, you know? So that's another thing. It's like a lot of times, like, for example, an easy example on that carton of eggs, you might see 12 eggs for like two bucks, and you're like, well, that's a deal. But it's only two bucks because of the heavy subsidies uh, and heavy bank bailouts too that the taxpayer is paying for, which you're paying for. So really it's, you know, four or five, six bucks or something of that sort. And the thing is, a lot of these factory farms wouldn't even be able to stay in business if they weren't subsidized by the government. It's as simple as that. They'll simply go out of business right away. The only reason they're able to stay in business is because of the subsidies. Even for example, if a uh, if a farmer, like a lo- there's a lot of vertical integration that goes on with a lot of these farms. So a big corporation will come in and they're like, Mike, we want you to grow our eggs for us, you know? Um, and you're like, just let's say a small farmer. They're like, well, we have, you know, these 
facilities, these processing facilities. We have all the contracts with the grocery stores. We have all the lawyers. We have all the veterinarians. We have all the trucks. We just simply drop off these hens. You grow the eggs for two years, and then we pick up the eggs every month or whatever, every week, and you get a paycheck, which kind of sounds great, you know, on the surface. But there, the, the catch is we need you to build like a huge facility, and it's going to cost you 500K. But don't worry, Mike. Uh, we know, uh, you know, the average farmer isn't making that much money. So we have a deal with the bank. If you go to the bank and say you're working with us and you're going to build this type of operation, you're, we already have all the systems in place, they're going to give you the loan. And you'll be able to build this operation. Uh, and we'll be able to stay in business as long as you just do what I say. If I say feed them genetically modified corn and soy, that's what you're going to feed them. If I say put antibiotics in their water, that's what you're going to do. If I say keep them indoors, locked in a cage all day, that's exactly what you're going to do. And you're not going to ask any questions. So the farmer, a lot of them do agree, you know, because it is a lot of stress off their shoulders. Like they don't have to worry about the marketing, getting the contracts with the grocery stores, all that stuff. But now they lose all their power. And on top of that, if they go out of business, which a lot of them do, well, then guess what? Like the bank simply gets the uh, the farmer's land, which is basically probably passed down for a few generations. So you lost all your family's net worth at that point. The farmer is tossed off, uh, tossed off to the side. Whatever the bank can't recoup from the loan, they simply get it from the taxpayer. So it's a win-win for them. They collect interests on your $500,000 loan while you're in business. And then when you're out of business, they just get everything you own and get the difference of what you didn't pay from the taxpayer anyways, and then usually sell it back to this corporation. And they put kind of just an employee manager in charge of the plant. And that's how a lot of the consolidation happened as well. So in the grocery store in the US, when you walk in there, it might look like you have a lot of choices. But in reality, if you look at the industry, you'll see like maybe 10 or 12 different companies basically in one way or another own the entire food supply chain. So it's just a few executives that are making the decisions for what maybe not me, guys like me and you eat, but pretty much 99% of Americans have access to, which is which is a pretty dense monopoly. And unfortunately, you know, sick people can't make healthy decisions where they wouldn't be sick. And a lot of the executives in charge of these companies are just not doing like very well physically or mentally. And they might be good at, you know, running the business and getting it to scale and maybe be good at accomplishing external worldly stuff, but that's that's not reflective of their mental and physical health, which is probably not good. So that's going to be reflected in what they decide to put into the food chain as well, you know, which is once again going to have a ripple effect and I would say a negative effect on the entire population. Eugene, do you happen to know, and I'm just curious, is there like within the farming industry as a whole, right? You could be, you could have, be a chicken farmer, you could have, you know, uh, pigs, you could be growing vegetables, whatever. Is there any one like subset of farming that tends to get more pressure from these companies? Or to your knowledge, is it just the whole system as a whole, as I would imagine? Or is there any one farmer that is maybe suffering more than another I'm, or you know, gets hit harder or is more handcuffed? I'm just curious about that. Yeah. So the pressure is across the board, but it is a lot more pressure in certain industries versus other industries. So any crop production industry is a pretty high pressure, especially 
would like corn and soy type products. Uh, poultry industry is mega high pressure. That's been definitely monopolized for sure. It's dominated by like two or three different companies. Uh, same kind of same similar roughly situation with pork. The beef industry has has taken hits, but they remain the most resilient out of the group. And typically, if you work with ranchers like I have during the process of this journey, and I'll kind of explain where to even buy, source your high quality, everything, so people don't even have to question their decisions, you'll see they're very independent minded, fairly kind of stubborn in their ways, and don't like to be told what to do, you know? Also, just the logistics of bigger animals, it's much tougher to kind of factory farm them versus like chicken or turkey, you know? And pork is kind of like in the middle because the the, the pigs can get pretty large towards their finishing phase of about six months. Uh, you know, you're looking at about two to 300 pounds or so, uh, but cattle are like huge and they're kind of angry <laughs> a lot of times too, you know? So it's it's not as easy, not as easy to manage them. Uh, but yeah, the, the consolidation for sure is there, I'd say it's just a lot more stubborn in the beef industry, definitely the bison industry as well. Um, fish farming is kind of in the middle there also, uh, but I'd say poultry and crop production is pretty pretty heavily controlled, uh, pretty heavily controlled, especially egg production as well, as I consider part of poultry. But but going back to our egg, egg topic, so yeah, I mean, definitely stay away from no label I can expand on these ideas of why, but I'm pretty sure it's clear at this point of why it's a good idea to stay away from that. There's also the huge discrepancy between the omega-3 and omega-6 quality of the egg. Typically we have very high omega-6, very low omega-3 uh, ratio uh, distribution. The ratio being important for just the inflammation that it can create in the body and how that has a cascade effect. Is that what you would say, or is there anything else to add to that? That would be the big one. And I'm going off of the inflammation okay. theory of disease here, of course. And of course, there are many vari variables to consider when inflammation is in charge. You know, a person's life stress, if they're fighting off some kind of bacterial infection, injury, uh, even, you know, rigorous training could cause a lot of inflammation too, um, mental stress, et cetera, et cetera. But from a dietary perspective, in terms of how our conversation is going today, a lot of Americans they're predominantly very high omega-6 dominant. You know, the, the ratio is all over the place. Talking about like one omega-3 to maybe 20 omega-6 in a typical American's diet, where you typically want it like pretty close to, uh, you know, one to three, you know, one to one if you can get it. Uh, and I'll explain ways I've done it. I've been able to get close to that, although I can't, I can't objectively prove it, but I think it is pretty close to it. Um, but the, the main thing is they also have to, take into consideration that hens are omnivores, you know, they like eating bugs, insects and all that stuff. So a lot of times too, when you see that vegetarian fed label on the product, that's not necessarily a good thing because that really just means grain fed. Once again, all those, all that corn, all that soy we mentioned in the, in the conversation. So it, it would be cool if it said omnivore fed <laughs> or species specific, that which is its species specific diet. And that's how you would optimize the nutritional profile of the egg. And you definitely don't get that in the caged operations, which are no logo. You definitely don't get that in the cage free operations because I kind of fell for that one. I'm like cage free. Well, that means they're outside. Nope. They're actually, instead of in a little shoe box, they're in a big uh, warehouse type cage with like, I don't know, 50, 60, 70,000 hens just smashed in there with about, you know, like two square foot of space max, uh, which is, is, which is very small. 
And then free range too. That one tricked me for a while. I was buying those eggs for a while. I mean, you always look at the pictures. They're out outside. It seems like an infinite amount of space. Uh, but really free range is once again, you got like a, a big warehouse, small little concrete smoke break pity, uh, patio, basically, you know, uh, it could be even so small that it's like five by five or something like that. Just a, just a very small area. And a lot of times too, um, I want to try to go as, as into detail as possible here to give them all the answers so they don't have to basically search it anywhere. Uh, the hens are, are very young and they're kind of afraid of the light. So oftentimes with the little openings to the outside, the light is very aggressive with how it comes through in a concentrated form. And it typically scares them off and they stay indoors their whole entire life anyway. So even if you see free range, maybe maximum 10% of them are going outside, maybe in like the bulk majority of operations. There's a sprinkle of good ones out there, but it's very rare. Um, in fact, I forgot the name of it, but um, animal rights organization filmed outside of a free range egg supplier to Whole Foods. I think it was like Mary's Chickens and they set up hidden cameras running 24 seven for multiple months on end. Not a single hen outside in these free range operations. Uh, I'm sure the article was like by The Intercept. I'm pretty sure it's still online. People can check it out. They have all the footage there and it was being sold as a free range operation to Whole Foods, which you think Whole Foods is pretty credible. It's kind of, you know, a higher tier grocery store. And they do, not to throw them under the bus, they do still sell good products. You just have to once again know what to buy there. It's not like all their products are great. I would say the bulk majority of them are still industrially grown, basically industrial organic, probably, you know? Uh, not, not, the best, not the best quality, but just like with anything, there are various levels of integrity of anything you do. So it just depends on where you want to stop your journey to. So then you got like what I think is the best one, but you have myriads of different levels of integrity, even of this category, which is the, the pasture raised ones. A good company that's very accessible to most people is um, Vital Farms. Uh, they sell a great brand. They sell a non-organic one, which is a black box, is a darker box. And then also an organic one, which is an orange box. You'll see it's organic because they'll have that USDA organic stamp. And in that operation, I would say that's the most realistic one for most people to get in the beginning of their journey because it's most accessible. And they do still feed grains. You know, you still got a lot of corn and soy there for sure, but at least it's organic. And they also have um, about 100 square foot of space per hen compared to just no space in the caged and basically two in um, in the free range plus cage free operation. This is important too, uh, because when you cram animals into a crammed environment, typically what happens is, is they're very stressed, right? Remember that they're living organisms too, and they like space like we do. And when they get stressed out, especially with chronic stress, and this actually happens with humans as well, uh, you get a lot of, the liver produces a lot of AA amyloid buildup, uh, AA amyloid proteins rather. And these are, these don't dissolve in the body, but they build up a plaque around the organ tissue of the animal. Um, and also to a smaller extent, the muscle tissue as well. So uh, this happens through a couple of, this chronic stress happens through a couple of reasons. You got the high confinement, which is very stressful, 
you also have the bacterial buildup. So the immune system is kind of revved up trying to fight off all of these viruses and bacteria and everything. There's like fecal matter everywhere. If uh, any of your listeners goes to any of these ranches, it's, it's going to stink inside like crazy, you know? I would imagine that they wouldn't let people see these operations. I would imagine. I mean, that's why like hidden cameras and like this footage gets out and it's it blows people away. But that was one of the things when it related to actually wanting to know where my food came from. And I shared earlier about going, uh, it's actually Stemple Creek Ranch out here um, in Tomales, five, fifth generation ranching family, incredible husband and wife operation. And they invite people to the farm. They do farm visits there. I've gone to so many dinners at their place. So it's like, it's an open door policy. I was actually just there teaching a one day retreat um, or one day men's event this weekend. And it was incredible. And it's like, you can just see the entire operation. Whereas a lot of these things, uh, there's definitely not going to be an open door policy, I would imagine, to the general public getting to actually see firsthand what goes on behind closed doors. Exactly. And that's an obstacle I ran into. I contacted some of these egg companies from the grocery store. I'm like, oh, can I come see it? They're like, nope. And they'll make up some story. They don't want to introduce viruses or whatever, you know, like blah, blah, blah. But dude, any legit farmer will that has nothing to hide and they even advertise it on their website the bulk majority of the times. Like, come visit our ranch on these days. We're giving <laughs> tours, you know? They don't even like, it's not even something you usually have to ask. It's just like, they're already happening. You just go join on one of those dates, basically. And that happened That happened to me as well. I'm reaching out and they're like, well, you know, we don't like people visiting. I'm like, oh, you know, that's kind of weird. Uh, I kind of di- didn't even think twice about it. I just dismissed it. I'm like, oh, I guess whatever. It's their business, you know? They don't like people visiting. But they don't like people visiting because it basically looks like a Nazi concentration camp when you go there. And obviously you're not gonna want to uh, buy those products once you really see uh, the state of health of these animals. And luckily it's available on YouTube. There's so much hidden camera stuff that's available there. You really don't have to visit these ranches in person anymore. You could just take Mike and I's word for it or just go look at the myriad of clips on YouTube of how uh, just kind of sad a lot of these factory farmed operations are and then kind of decide for yourself what you want to do from there but with the pasture raised operations i also found it a bit tricky too so you got the vital choice it's a great go-to for for the majority of people it's still like heavily grain fed operation um i actually volunteered to learn more about pasture raised egg laying operations at happy-hens.com And luckily, they actually do sell their eggs at certain Whole Foods locations in Southern California. And I really think um, those are the absolute best go-to that's accessible to a person at a grocery store level. So they're USDA organic certified. They're non-GMO certified. Their hens actually have close to 240 square feet per space, uh, per hen. So that's quite a bit. And I, I work there in person. They have a great rotation system. Uh, tremendous amount of space uh, uh, per hen. The good thing about that is the more space they have, the more bugs you get per hen. Because if it's a very condensed operation, there's only so many insects on like any one acre of land, for example. So obviously, if you have too many, then you still got to go back to relying on grains, you know, like heavily relying on grains. And then they lose their balance in their species-specific diet. And you still get that mismatch in the 
omega-3 to omega-6. So this operation uses no corn and soy at all, uh, at all. Um, so once again, USDA organic certified too, they went the extra mile to get that certification. Uh, it is it is a good certification to look for. It's not like the all be all, there's better farming practices out there, but it's better to see it than not to see it at the grocery store for sure. And they're great and their website is great and they do offer farm tours as well, happy-hens.com. And um, they're, they're probably the absolute best. I mean, the absolute best you're not gonna find at a commercial level in the sense one that doesn't use grains at all or like such minimal amounts. Uh, and you're basically only gonna be able to grow that yourself or just, I have one guy here that does that and he shares some of his eggs with me, but it's not like something I feel is feasible to do at a business level, you know? Sure. You know, we're focusing a lot on the the chicken industry, for example. And one thing I'm curious, do you happen to know, um, at least in America, for example, what are like the top three most consumed uh, proteins? Is it uh, like is chicken number one and eggs, for example, just do chicken products. Then is it pork? Then is it beef? Uh, what would you say? I forget the exact ranking in terms of the quantities, but poultry is going to be by far number one. I think last time I checked, it was close to, I don't know, like an overwhelming amount of people just eat chicken. You think America is more like a beef kind of burger type of society, but really it's just a fairly small market compared to the amount of chicken Americans eat every, every single day. So yeah, and we'll cover, we'll cover, hopefully, if you have the patience, I would like to cover the bulk majority of, of the food groups here. So people walk away from this podcast, just knowing like literally what to do from start to finish. And even the part, I'll explain the part of my journey now too, of how I progressed just to eating. I actually started this month just to eating wild game and that's it. Not even eating like farm food altogether. So, so with, with, the eggs, I think we can conclude it there. I think the audience got a pretty solid picture of what to look for. I mean, basically stay away from no logo for sure. Stay away from cage-free, stay away from free range. Get pasture-raised for sure, but try to make sure it has that USDA organic label. And obviously if you know the operation, that'll be the best, but vital choice is gonna be a good, good starting place for most people. If you have that happyhens.com, um, company in your area, that's going to be a great choice. Uh, usually try to look for like corn and soy free or at least soy free. But once again, they could still supplement with heavy amounts of like barley or other type of grains, which still shoot that omega-6 up pretty high. I mean, like you said, you really just at the end of the day, got to know your farmer, you know, and got to go there and also just have to know which questions to ask. So sometimes asking like a lot of times people get confused, like it's non-genetically uh, modified grains. They would say that, but that doesn't mean it's organic. You know, non-GMO just means the seed isn't genetically modified, but it could still be grown with a myriad of different biocides, which eventually uh, they get soaked up by the root of the plant. So it's not even like a lot of times with vegetables, people think they can kind of wash it off, but really a lot of these chemicals get soaked up by the root of the plant and makes it into the nutritional profile of the crop. Even if you peel off the skin, it's, it's just a very small percentage of those chemicals are actually on the surface. The bulk majority of it is in the actual crop itself. And the average newborn born in a metropolitan area in America these days, you had a kid recently born with 200 different chemical, synthetic trace amounts of synthetic chemicals in their bloodstream already, just at a starting point, just to give you an idea. Uh, and their metabolisms are obviously so 
so much smaller. So these chemicals have even a bigger impact on them versus like a grown person, which could maybe process some of these chemicals. But I think the toxic load in the average American is so high these days. Like who knows how these chemicals interact? Nobody knows because there's no safety testing done on complete formulations on any of these pesticides either. The safety testing is just done on an active ingredient in isolation on its own. It's never with the complete product. That's what people don't get. Like they never take the complete product, spray it on something and then see if it has harmful effects. They just take the active ingredient in isolation on its own, then test that in a very controlled laboratory. But remember, farmers are using such higher doses than what's recommended on these product labels too. You have to take that into consideration too. Okay, that dose was proven to be safe in the lab, but dude, they're using like 10 times the amount. <laughs> I guarantee you they're using like 10 times the amount on any crop yield and plus like a myriad of different chemicals all at one time. Not like this chemical was tested in isolation on its own in the lab in a very controlled environment. That just never happens in real life. First of all, they use the complete formulation. And second of all, they use a myriad of different complete formulations all on the same crop cycle as well. Um, so there's a lot, there's a lot under the, under the table there that a lot of people are like, oh, you know, it's the government's looking for your, out for your best. And I think the US government with the way they do things, they're actually like pretty good at making sure something doesn't kill you right away. I, I think they're they're actually pretty good at that compared to other countries, but they're really bad at long-term vision. You know, how's this gonna impact this person's health you know, 10, 15, 20 years down the line? Or how's this gonna impact the environment 10, 15, 20 years down the line? They said glyphosate wasn't persistent in the environment. Now it's found in like 70% of rainwater. It's like, what happened to the studies that showed it wasn't persistent in the environment? Or it's found in like 90% of urine samples of US citizens. Um, just uh i mean that that's a whole whole another conversation there's a really good book by andre lu called the myth of safe pesticides which is a great read definitely an eye-opener for me uh, it just kind of showed the ridiculousness of the way certain studies are carried out and i mean the the biggest bogus most ridiculous thing is just the fact that they never test the complete formulation of a product i mean they the, the product has an active ingredient and a bunch of inactive ingredients the inactive ingredients are put there in the formulation to make the active ingredient more potent. So they take those inactive ingredients out and then test the active ingredient in isolation of its own. So obviously the results are going to be skewed. But then once again, like I said, the product also isn't adhered to how it says on the label in actual practice. Farmers use far higher doses all the time recklessly. Um, a lot of the training staff isn't really competent on these. They just kind of strap on these backpacks. They're very low cost labor. And they're like, go spray all day. You know what I mean? They're not really instructed on how much usage spray or, or stuff of that sort. And so all that makes it into the, the food product, like whatever you eat, if it's crops or animals that eat those crops, that's all going to build up in your tissue. And then obviously your toxic load is going to be higher, you know, uh, there are a myriad of reasons why people develop cancer, but I guarantee you one of them is most likely just Americans' toxic load is extremely high. And there are no safety st studies done on what all of these chemicals in a single organism brewing 24-7 in that organism is going to do to that person's health in a long enough time frame. And I would say looking at people's health today, just as objective 
evidence. I mean, they're just very sick. They're very fat. Um, there's a, uh, seems to be a higher inclination to men mental illness of various sorts as well. Uh, just a lot of males have very low testosterone as well. Once again, a myriad of reasons for that too. Um, like a lot of males have breast tissue now. It's just very common. Like, dude, if you look at pictures of males like pre-1950, like no males had breast tissue, you know? And then all of a sudden now it's like literally like every other person has like breast tissue. But that's that's kind of to summarize the egg part. Uh, to touch on your, your subject, you mentioned chicken as well. That's the most popular popular consumed protein in America. That one kind of overlaps a lot with the eggs. So you have, there you have cage free. Remember, we mentioned you want to avoid that one for sure. You have free range, which is unfortunately the best you're probably going to get at the supermarket level. It's fairly rare to run into pasture raised chicken at the supermarket. Whole Foods does sell some in like the side aisles in the refrigerator area, like as a whole chicken, but never as pieces usually. And they're, they're most always not organic too. They say non-GMO, but once again, non-GMO just means the seed itself is not genetically modified. Uh, that doesn't mean it wasn't grown with biocides, which it most definitely was in that case. Yeah. So for you know, if you're really interested in pasture-raised operations, you can visit a website called like eatwild.com and they can scroll to the top left of that, right? Like poultry, meat, milk, click on that tab and you'll see a huge map of the US. And then you simply select an operation in your state. If you want to uh, support your local economy, you'll see a bunch of them in every state or a lot of them even ship as well. So keep that in mind. You don't have to actually order from your local area. Uh, it's up to you what you want to do there. And most all of the operations that will get farm tours also. So that would be that would be the go-to um, for poultry for if, if someone is interested in buying the highest quality chicken meat, if that's what they're looking for. It's pretty much the same thing applies to turkey as well. All the same labels, all the same operations. Um, usually in the factory farm levels, they're fed once again heavy amounts of these grains usually from genetically modified sources that are grown with a lot of chemicals that are nutritionally inferior as compared to especially those same crops if they were grown in a biodynamic environment um, and stuff of that sort. So eatwild.com is going to be a great resource for people. If you do decide to go to a farm, you know, some good questions to ask are like, uh, do you feed them organic grains? You know, how much space do you have per hen? Do you rotate them often? Are they on the same piece of land? Uh, stuff of this sort. So if, if they're looking at, you know, 100, uh, 100 square feet is great. You know, 200 is great as well, something around that. Because if their stocking density is too heavy too, um, once again, they're going to be relying too much on these grains as well. Not too much, but just more so on these grains. And the tough thing about also pasture-raised operations is tough to find one that's actually feeding them or supplementing with organic grains. That's another obstacle that the listener will run into because a lot of operations are just really big on having non-GMO, which is great, but not actual organic grains. And there is a little bit of wiggle room there too with organic grains because when I got this from uh, Joel Saladin, when I talked to him about this topic, is um, unfortunately the U.S. gets a lot of their grains from like super corrupt countries, you know, and the corruption is at the broker level. So uh, the crop, for example, would be grown 
non-organically in Turkey. Then at the docks, the paperwork would be shifted around a little bit, made it look like organic grains, imported as organic grains to the U.S., and sold as organic grains here. And that's pretty common practice. Since I've talked to Joel Salatin about it, which was like maybe like three, four years ago, I don't know if it's improved since then, but it's probably still occurring. Um, so that's something else to factor into, unfortunately, which goes back to my first statement of how tough it's become just to find chemical free, like natural, like quote unquote natural food in the US. You can see um, I'm fast tracking it, obviously, through my experience, but it's still the person will still have to do a little bit of work even after listening to this, even after given so many answers directly of what to do uh, and stuff of that sort. So, so that's that's my take about the chicken. It's up to you to decide what you want to do there. Um, the next topic, you know, I went to was uh, beef. That's a common one, and it's a little bit more straightforward, but it's still like fairly complicated. How was? I'm just curious on you. How was your journey with finding high quality beef? Because mine was a roller coaster still, like a, a myriad of confusion with all the labels. But yeah, you know, with finding quality meat, I mean, at the end of the day, I think just to give voice that whether it's listening to this podcast or just doing some basic searches, like there's going to have to be, and you gave voice to this beautifully, but there's going to have to be some level of initiative on our part, on anyone listening to this, if they want to take better care of themselves, take better care of their family through the food that they eat. Because for the very things that you've shared, like the environment that which we live in is just not, it's not automatic. Like we don't live in a, like a largely biodynamic environment in terms of where we source our food. Like I go down the street and there's five different massive uh, supermarkets. So for me, I mean, I've always been really curious and I've been, I would say I started meal prepping at like, 14. And even though I was doing the best I could with the information I had, I was still very curious in taking that initiative. But it really wasn't until, uh, let's say, plus or minus 12 years ago that I found Stemple Creek Ranch just through doing uh, internet searches and stuff. So probably when I was like 24, I mean, with the dawn of the internet, like there's obviously a bunch of, I would say, uh, negative aspects that come with technology, but there's also an, a bunch of beautiful aspects as well. And so, you know, when I was 24 is really when I started probably getting most seriously into it and really being willing to take that next step of like, okay, if this requires me to get a group of people together, my family or my friends to invest in this and I believe in this, then I'm going to do it. And in the beginning, it was a little bit like... um not, it wasn't like out of left field by any means, but it was like a, a strange thing to do. Even today, like buying a whole beef like sounds kind of strange or half beef or a quarter beef or whatever. But every year that went by and I started learning more, I was just like getting self-validation and validation from the research and then just how I was feeling, how my family was feeling. So I would say the first 10 years were quite confusing based off of just the information I had access to. But then as I started just researching more, all this stuff you can do, you know, you can find so much of this on the internet and now through podcasts like what we're doing right now. So my journey, I want to say it was challenging and very confusing and just due to putting the work in and doing some research, it was actually pretty easy. Like, I, I mean, I live also in Northern California. So, you know, I think just uh, the propensity of farms where I live, like, uh, and it's grown more and more, but in this area, more or less in Northern California, like... I could definitely choose 
easily three to six uh, good farms in in our area like that are doing good work. So uh, it's definitely been a journey, but I feel really blessed to have been able to find a, like a farm like Stemple Creek. We are just weeks away from the next Men of Movement retreat happening June 8th through the 11th in Mount Shasta, California. And I just hopped off the phone and had a meeting with the other co-facilitators who lead this event alongside me. And man, we got some new rad stuff in store. This event is all about getting a group of like-minded and like-hearted men from all different paths, walks of life together to do some of the work that we typically don't have the opportunity to do outside where we can get together out in nature, no cell phones, dropping in together and really just doing our best to sharpen each other, to give each other honest, heart-centered feedback, to go through rites of passage, to grow alongside one another. And so if you're a man and this event interests you, go ahead and click the link in the show notes. We will hop on a call and I look forward to talking to you soon. Now let's get back to the show. Yeah. So for me, I guess your journey was a little bit faster than mine. For me, it was still kind of a wave of labeling confusion. So um, obviously I like to uh, thank like Carrie Balcom. She really helped me. She's one of the kind of like founders of AmericanGrassFed.org. She really helped me understand the legality behind all of the labels and and stuff of that sort. And um, also Frank Fitzpatrick, he's the owner of like number five bar beef in Southern California. So I worked on his ranch for um, for a little over a year, learning about regenerative grass-fed uh, agriculture and stuff of that sort. He really fast-tracked it for me, especially getting a lot of hands-on experience. Uh, but in short, I mean, for the listeners, you know, at the grocery store level, you got a few different labels. You got the grass-fed label, which in and of itself doesn't really say much because all cattle are grass-fed for the majority of their life, for like 80% of their life. And then probably like 99% of them are sent to a feedlot where they're fed a lot of grains and fattened up quite a bit and then kind of sent to a processing plant. And that's what ends up basically in, in the grocery store, in the packets and, and all that stuff. So when you see, that's what kind of confuses me sometimes too. When you see the grass-fed label, um, that literally most likely just means that, you know, they're grass-fed and grain finished. It really isn't anything magical or say anything outside of normal production capabilities. But also what's confusing is sometimes you do see grass-fed and grass-finished. But because the grass-fed labeling is not regulated at all in the U.S., so literally what you have to do to apply for a grass-fed label claim is literally just say you're grass-fed and fill out some paperwork, and that's it. And people just take your word for it. So obviously, um, like there's a study done by um, Jason Runtree which is the lead professor of the agriculture department at Michigan State University, the one that's kind of helped me um, administer this amyloid study as well. And they took, I forgot the exact numbers, but they took like, I don't know, 15 different grass-fed, quote unquote, samples from different grocery stores in the area, literally sold as grass-fed at the grocery store. And close to half of them had the nutritional profile of grain-finished beef. So for, for example, you know, uh, also, I would say like at the, um, once again, there are some legitimate operations, not throwing everyone at the bus there, but at the grocery store level, I would say if it's a legit like regenerative farm, it's going to be tough to supply grocery store consistency 
uh, through that kind of farming practice because it's just so dependent on the weather. You don't quite force production on the animals, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the grocery store would typically side with more of like an industrial type operation, which inevitably would cut more corners, you know, to also make it more like little price, more affordable, price friendly for the consumer at the grocery store. We'll talk about prices and and how inexpensive it really is once you look into the details of the economics, which which I'll show for your listeners too, um, and stuff of that sort. So a lot of times, sometimes you see like grass fed, grass finished. I mean, the operation could be they could literally feed the cattle grass for like uh, you know eight months, put them on grains for like two months, finish them on a week of grass, and still sell it as grass fed and grass finished. And it is grass fed and grass finished. They're not lying to you. You know, they just forgot to mention that little part in the middle. Uh, but that that's okay, you know, and you'll never ask. It totally goes under people's radar, you know. Sometimes you see like 100% grass fed, and once again, it could be or it could not be. There are no on site inspections at all. You know, anyone can just put these labels on there and, and good luck figuring it out. A lot of times, too, it's like what enriches the nutritional profile of grass fed cattle is the variety of forage they have. So, like one time I was buying from a high end grocery store, legit. It said 100% grass-fed beef. And then I called them and they were honest. They're like, oh, we just, we give them pellets in a feedlot at the end, you know? So there's there's an issue with the preservation of these pellets and the chemicals used for that, especially with like fish farming, and toxicine, uh, which is of course developed by Monsanto, super trustworthy company. Not really though, that's just a sarcastic joke. So there's that aspect. And there's also the aspect of then just feeding them like one type of species of grass, you know, like forage which once again, hinders the nutritional profile of the cattle. Ideally, once again, like I mentioned, there are like 11,000 species of grass. And any one acre, you'll probably find a few hundred different species. And they're eating all of those different ones. And each one provides like unique nutrients to the animal, which then you end up consuming and, and gaining those nutrients as well. Um, so I volunteered at, at like the number five barbeef.com through Frank Fitzpatrick. He's been doing this for a very long time, 30 years probably. And if you want like literally wild beef, that's a great resource for you. Like it doesn't clip the bulls or anything, doesn't dehorn the animals, zero vaccines. What he did with his herd is he started it about 30 years ago. And the ones that couldn't survive in the environment, he just let them die out. And the ones that could were left to breed, uh, obviously, baby cattle that were able to survive in that environment and thrive in that environment without any vaccines or medicines or antibiotics or beta agonists or steroids or genetically modified organisms and the myriad of other chemicals they use in typical beef production practices. And they're outside 24 seven, um, not contained in any feedlot whatsoever. Uh, so if you're looking for like legitimate grass fed, like wild beef, you know, that's not altered in any way, that's, that'll be a great resource for you. Uh, that's kind of where I volunteered and, and learned a lot of practices from there. And Terry, Bo I mean, AmericanGrassFed.org is a great website. They can scroll to the bottom of the website. There is an interactive map there. They can click on it and you'll see actual on-site inspected, legit grass-fed operation ranches. Like Very these cool. are, they'll see the stamp too, that American grass-fed stamp. It's kind of like a little grass logo. And at least you have some kind of inspection process. You know, these people went the extra mile to actually annually, it's every 15 months and they do that 
simply to be able to inspect the ranch on different seasons too. Because some seasons you could run a legit operation, but other seasons you might substitute with grains because of lack of forage and stuff of that sort. So you have to screen them throughout multiple different seasons to see if they really are legitimate. You know, leafycreekfarm.com is a great operation as well. Uh, they're AGA certified, USDA organic certified, and real organic project certified. I mean, this guy went the extra mile and got literally every single diploma you can possibly get. Um, <laughs> there's maybe like three, uh, three, th- maybe a handful of those kind of operations in the entire state. Uh, I think a great company that I have great success with, they have amazing logistics and their own processing plant. So they're able to reduce the price of their product is azgrassraisedbeef.com. We'll put all these links so that people can access them pretty easily. Yeah, and they're in the, um, they're AGA certified, a regenerative farm in Arizona, uh, which delivers pretty much um, anywhere in the US, you know, within two days. You typically order between, you typically order before Tuesday and they ship it out and you get it on Thursday. Great customer service too, very friendly, like reasonable, decent prices as well. And then one thing you can do, like you mentioned, is just order like a couple months worth so you can economize the shipping too. The shipping's like 10 bucks, which isn't even that bad, you know? So you can do that as well. That's a great farm. Or you can go to that americangrassfed.org website and you can see a myriad of different ranches. Just pick one that suits your personality best because every ranch has its own personality too, you know, because they're run by individuals. And the good thing is, is that farmer gets all the money, you know? Uh, which is they get the money directly. They don't have to give half of it to like the grocery store. And then by the time the farmer gets any, they're left with like pennies, you know, uh, not honestly rewarded for for their good and honest work. Uh, and, and regenerative farms too, they're great. A lot of people kind of look down on cattle or bison, but hey, they're a self-sustaining, uh, self-sustaining meat product. So cattle, you know, they poop, they pee on a certain land. Uh, they use their hooves to kind of stamp stamp the nutrients into the soil. They also lay down and put the nutrients into the soil that way as well. They eat the grass, which like you and I can't eat anyways. And that converts that into actual edible energy, which you and I could eat, which is their muscle tissue, organ tissue, et cetera. And then once they're done eating up that grass on a certain place of land, they go to, you know, you rotate them onto the next acre. And while they're on that acre, that original acre that's been used up grows back because of all that natural fertilizer. And then you bring them right back to the original one and kind of rinse and repeat, basically. And that's it. There are no external inputs. That's the main thing about sustainability. Can you sustain that operation without external inputs? And pretty much all of the operations on that American grass-fed website, at least at their cattle side, are going to be operating that model. So if that's important for you, to have that sustainability factor, that's the way to go. It's definitely not going to be from becoming a vegetarian for sure. Because if you become a vegetarian, you're getting all your calories from beans, lentils, grains, stuff of that sort. And all of those are grown in a monoculture, which is extremely devastating for the environment. It displaces millions of animals worldwide, which end up dying. Uh, also, uh, like around here, you got a bunch of deer and boar farmers have to kill because they come in for those crops. So you're easily killing hundreds of animals per operation per year just to sustain that, those grains, which, you know, a lot of vegetarians are like, well, I don't want to kill animals or whatever and stuff of that sort. And um, 
and I agree with the factory farms for sure. It's, it's horrendous. And I agree with them on that side that that part should be gotten rid of for sure or uh, stuff of that sort. But with beef products, those are some great resources. And then you mentioned your resource as well. So that should give people enough leeway to, to pick something that works for them. I would like to cover fish, which is really straightforward, actually, compared to the other categories. Okay. So fish, you got two like distinct categories. You got the the farm raised, and then you got the wild fish category. And the good thing is, is um, at the store, it's clearly labeled wild farm, you know, so it's, it's pretty straightforward there. And also, there's just a lot of species of fish that aren't farmed. So if you just buy those, you know, it's not getting contaminated with ones that are. The biggest confusion, for example, is like, let's compare Atlantic salmon with sockeye salmon. Atlantic salmon sounds like wild salmon as well, but it's not. When you see like Atlantic salmon, it really means farm-raised salmon. It's actually not from the Atlantic Ocean. And it'll usually honestly say that on the back somewhere in kind of smaller print. Or if it's out in display, it will say that at the top of the, the price tag or something of that sort. It's really not like they're trying to hide it. Uh, you could also visually see, like, for example, even with kind of rewinding back a little bit, you can visually see if the beef is legitimate grass-fed because it'll be like almost purple. And the fat will be like almost like a, like a dull yellow. Yeah. And there's generally very little fat. Where uh, grain-finished beef is very bright red and they have very like waxy white fat that's thick too. And usually if you poke the fat of the legit grass-fed operation, you will see it's very soft. But if you poke the fat of the grain-finished operation, it's very hard. It's not soft at all. It's like almost like frozen wax, you know? So you can easily visually tell, and you can do the same thing with the farmed salmon. Farmed salmon is very orange, and they typically have like thick white uh, fibers of fat in between the muscle tissue. And if you look at the sockeye salmon, it's very bright red and almost no visible fat. I mean, such thin strands. You really need like a microscope to be able to see it. And remember, like wild caught anything is always going to be the apex of food production, whether it's crops or animals or fish. Um, Mother Nature is always going to be the best farmer around and the most sustainable farmer around, too, if that's if that's an issue for you uh, as well. So. Wild caught anything is, is always going to be best. So that's how you can kind of tell between sockeye salmon and also Atlantic salmon and not kind of fall for the Atlantic salmon logo because on the picture it will show like a fish hopping out of water and it looks like, but if you zoom out, it's really in a, in a net and it's trying to hop out of the net. You know, that's what they like to show, but they kind of zoomed in. They kind of zoomed in. And a lot of these fish, um, fish farm operations are super gross. So you can check out a really good documentary on YouTube for free. Norwegian salmon, most toxic fish in the world, something of that sort, which was shocking to me because I thought like from Norway, you know, it's like such a clean looking country. It's way up there in the north. But it turns out, you know, fish farming has become very popular there and it's actually impacting the native wild fish population, too, because with fish farms, you have distinct three categories that either do them on land in like a huge warehouse. Usually they do them off uh, like at the at the perimeter of the shore or they sometimes rarely do it out, out at sea as well. So the ones out in the shore, you'll see these huge nests. There are like millions of fish in there, like back to back, you know? So you run into all the same problems we mentioned with all the other meat operations. They're typically spraying pesticides directly on these animals to help 
uh, kill a lot of the ticks that grow on them. There's usually a huge 12 to 14 meter mountain of feces beneath these nets. You know, that's constantly all of the, the chemicals that are these grains are grown with, you know, these genetically modified organisms that they're being fed. They're making it into that feces, then they're making it into the ocean, which are negatively impacting uh, the native wild fish population. Also, just making the, the creeks and ravines very, very dirty and gross. And then sometimes these farmed fish escape and then breed with the wild fish, and then it kind of messes up the ecosystem through that vantage point, too. Uh, with a lot of these fish pellets, like I mentioned before, they're grown, uh, they're, they're preserved with intoxicine. And that's, I got this from, this is what that documentary was about. And it's like intoxicine is a preservative you can't give directly to humans. But of course, Monsanto, money's first. You know, a lot of these companies, they really just don't give a fuck about you at all. They really just need to kind of make the bottom line. And sure, they can't give it directly to you, but they can make fish pellets and give it to the fish that make it into the nutritional profile of the fish and sell the fish to you still, you know? Um, and they showed some interesting studies there. And a lot of the researchers were like, well, you can see very high elevated levels of intoxicant in the flesh of these fish. And I would, per the, the researchers were saying, I would never eat this type of fish, you know, which are kind of like farm fish, which falls into that, like Atlantic, Atlantic farm fish category. Same thing with tilapia, all tilapia is farmed. Like a lot of shellfish um, uh, are farmed as well. But but the good thing is for the consumer, it's easier. You just look and it'll say farm. Sometimes it says sustainably farmed. I call it BS. The only sustainable uh, way of really having uh, fish production is like through wild, wild fish. And that's presuming they don't overfish as well. So stuff of that sort. Great company is vitalchoice.com. If they're really into... Uh, you can buy wild fish at the grocery store. It's still amazing. Any kind of wild caught food is great. Uh, Vital Choice might be a good resource for some of your listeners. They fish in remote places in Alaska, which aren't as heavily industrialized. So you're not going to get a lot of pollutants in the water, which is kind of another issue that, that arises through industrialization as well. So for listeners that are more... Uh, possibly also getting certain types of species of fish, which you typically wouldn't find at the grocery store. But I found Whole Foods actually have like a pretty good, decent, wide variety of wild fish at, at any given time. So it gives you it gives you good flexibility there. Even if you don't turn to hunting or fishing, you can at least enjoy wild, wild game without actually doing the hard work of having to maybe sit out in the forest for like five days straight and literally not see anything, you know, uh, which, which kind of hunting ends up being sometimes. So uh, so that's that's the fish category, much more straightforward. Before we go on to like the vegetables, you're welcome. I, I hate for this to be a monologue too, Mike, because I know you have so much to bring to the table too. So you're welcome to jump in anytime and just throwing your experience with any of these food groups too. Well, I also think too, I mean, you've got so much, and I knew this about you, and this is also why I wanted to have this conversation because this is really the first conversation on the show discussing food and discussing nutrition. It's been mostly around uh, self-development work and, and, and the inner world and navigating that. And so I just want to also give voice to, we very well will and may uh, need to do a part two to this. And I also 
yeah, I'm I'm feeling into where we're at right now and also how much we we have covered. And so if you don't mind, what I'd love for you to do is maybe share a little bit of the high level stuff on the the fruits and or the the vegetables and that and that jazz. Uh, and just also, you've got so much to share. And also your book, just to give it voice right here, is called The Anti-Factory Farm. Is that correct? Anti, is that, what, what's the exact name of the, the book that you wrote? Anti-Factory Farm Shopping Guide. Just trying to make Got it straightforward okay, like this podcast. You know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, yeah, if you, if you don't mind, maybe just giving the high level of this next category, and then we will absolutely do a part two to this as well and, and continue this, this, this conversation. Yeah. So with the vegetables and fruits, that one was also very tricky for me personally. And it still is even to this day because a large percentage of the vegetables and fruits at the grocery store aren't even grown in the soil anymore. They're grown hydroponically. And for your listeners, uh, there are a couple of different ways to do this, but in general, you have basically kind of like a container and these plants are not grown in soil and they're hooked up to like an IV drip or basically given artificial nutrients that way. And obviously, if you just kind of like use a little bit of common sense, you'll understand that, you know, the world has gone through five plus billion years of complicated evolution, five mass extinctions, the universe has gone through, you know, around 11 billion years of evolution to give rise to the galaxies, to give rise to our galaxy, to give rise to our solar system, to give rise to our planet, which gave rise to the soil composition that made it possible for these crops to arise. And what hydroponics does is basically just go like, oh, all that stuff's not important. I know better. I'm going to skip that part and just do this IV drip thing. So that's obviously it's up to you to decide if that's a red flag for you or not. For me, that's like a huge red flag when someone thinks they know all the detailed intricacies of that many billions of years of evolution, I would say they might need to attend to some of your inner work podcasts to come to reality uh, with their ego and be more realistic about how little they know. Uh, so, but the tricky thing is too, is the US is the only country too that allows hydroponics to be certified as organic, you know, as well. So sometimes you're buying organic, you're thinking soil, well, it really kind of looks like one of the scenes from the matrix, you know? Not quite like what you're thinking about in terms of the mom and dad shop. And a lot of things, uh, a lot of pretty much everything at the grocery store, not every single product, but a large percentage of them are industrially grown, monocropped, even if it's organic. It could be industrial organic as well. That's what a lot of people get confused. So so that one's a little, that one's a little bit tough, you know, to navigate around. And then there's also the aspect of, you know, these crops are picked before they ripen so they can ripen on the way to the grocery store. And the ripening process is what gives them all their nutritional value. And if they're grown in a monocrop environment, the nutrition is already somewhat low, then whatever nutrition they have left is depleted just through decay on the way to the grocery store, then it sits on the shelf. By the time you eat it, it could be multiple weeks old from being picked from, from the soil. And obviously just like a dead animal, the second you pick a, a vegetable out of the ground, it already starts decaying and losing its nutritional value. And the other thing which really goes under the radar of a lot of people, including myself, is that a lot of the crops you see in the grocery store, not all of them, have gone through genetic manipulation for many centuries already. So a good example is like a carrot. Um, a lot of people think a carrot's like orange, but really it started off as like a like basically a white root in like Afghanistan. And through hundreds of years, it made its way to India, 
through genetic selection and it became purple. Hundreds of years later, it made its way to China where it became red. Hundreds of years later, it made its way to Turkey where it became yellow. And then hundreds of years later, it made its way, I believe, to Denmark where it became orange. And throughout this genetic manipulation, which is done with pretty much all crops, farmers favor high sugar content at the expense of a lot of phytonutrients, okay, like anti-cyanins. It's like, for example, with orange carrots, you have no anti-cyanin content. It's very, very small. But with purple carrots, it could be at least nine times the amount, probably even higher if it's not grown in a monocrop type environment, which it most likely is. So this kind of trade-off for having typically softer skin, so it's easier to eat, plus higher sugar content at the expense of phytonutrients, has been done to pretty much a lot of the crops we see at the grocery store as well. So it's like when you combine, you know, hydroponically grown, picked before it's ripened, sitting on the shelf for a long time, uh, genetic manipulation over the years, which favors sh higher sugar for lower phytonutrients, you'll see you get like a very inferior product that's missing a lot of key nutrients that a person needs to, um, to be able to freaking thrive in life basically. And yeah, I mean, look, you don't even have to freaking take my word for it. Just look at the state of health in America. It's like freaking a disaster. It's like a circus. It's like a horror movie circus, you know? You know, Eugene, one of, uh, and you may have heard of this book or, or read it, uh, but a book that I absolutely love, and I probably have listened to it on Audible twice on very long drives, like driving from NorCal to San Diego and then read it. I think two times, is called Eating on the Wild Side. Oh yeah, that's where I got this genetic manipulation from. And, and as you were sharing that story of the carrot, how it's changed over time and like even like we have our, our backyard and, and even just having a small little like garden in someone's backyard or home, like it doesn't need to be a big, big area. But you can order, you know, some of these wild seeds, these seeds that haven't been you know, even if they are organic that haven't been changed so many times over, over, over the years. And that book is such a fascinating book because it goes over like the historical context. I mean, society, how the things have changed via everything that you're sharing there. So I just wanted to call out that book, but it's phenomenal book. If anyone is interested. Maybe one thing we can say for next time is I, as I am transitioning to wild game, uh, I've been able to successfully do that and found like a, I can't do that through hunting. I've taken up hunting as well as, as you have also. Um, so I've currently at the ratio, I can kind of supply one out of seven days of meat for myself through hunting, but the rest of it, I found actually like a really good website that supplies wild game for sale. So I was able mm. to come up with a difference there and maybe we can cover more of my transition there and then kind of also some other stuff too later on. Beautiful, man. Yeah. I would love to have a part two and just, uh, just in what you shared, not even just in what you shared, what you shared today, I think, and I know is going to blow people's minds. So, uh, brother, thank you so much for just being so willing to share not only your journey, but really to help people out there. And if, if, if people got a notepad out and just started jotting down notes on everything that, that you had shared, I know they'd be in a, a much better position um, not in two months, not in four months, in literally tomorrow or in today when they're listening. So thank you so much for your time. And once again, sharing everything that you've put in. Um, 
if there's any anything else that you'd like to share in terms of, of course, where people can find you, uh, your book, we shared the anti-factory uh, shopping guide, any other resources that you would like to share on people, how they can get in contact with you. I would love for you to to close it out with that, my man. Yeah, I'm on I'm on all the social media things for better or worse. You know, love hate relationship with those things. Uh, they can search like Eugene Trufton, obviously. I have my own website, Trufton Athletics, as well, where I also have my own podcast, just sharing people's stories that have gone on honest health journeys and don't want to live a, a life of like obesity, misery, and disease, and being hooked on all these dangerous and toxic medical drugs, and really believing that health can be found in a, in a pill of some sort, that delusional belief and, and stuff of that sort. So if, if people are, you know, interested in going on an honest journey, which is not hard, but I would say easier than staying obese, miserable, and full of disease any day of the week, and you also look better while doing it, which is another plus, uh, you can, you know, go to, go to that or follow Mike's stuff, you know, follow people that are actually, actually doing it and living true to the message and have overcome hurdles themselves, which are, uh, which are present in a lot of people, you know, and they're looking for real reasonable answers, not just another like, oh, you have a rock stuck inside your shoe. Don't worry about taking it out. Just here, take these painkillers instead approach, which is unfortunately what healthcare has become today, especially in the, in the medical community. It's really unfortunate to see that and that, that people are uh, duped into believing that that's really the way to go where it's like this, uh, I mean, it's giving them false hope, you know? So people have to, there are a lot of people, there's one guy that made it on Joe Rogan's podcast that's bringing a lot more light to that. There are a lot of people that have brought light to it too. And I'm happy that more and more popular figures are coming out and showing people that it's like a, it's kind of like from my perspective, a scam, you know, that's making things like a net negative for Americans, not even a positive. And the, the average American, like I mentioned, go outside anywhere in America, nine out of 10 people you run into are just like, full of obesity, misery, and disease. You can totally see the misery in their face, you know? And unfortunately, it's kind of like normalized for a lot of these people. Uh, it's just totally normal. And they think it's just because of their age or I foolishly believe it's because of their genetics, but it's not true. It's just, it's, it's they're doing it to themselves. And if they have better role models and better systems, they can stop doing it to themselves at the end of the day, you know? and. I think that would just be better for the person, better for the environment, better for the country overall. Uh, and um, it's overall way cheaper. I have all the economics on this. We'll cover it in another show, but it's just overall way cheaper, way better for you. You look way better, you feel way better. You don't have to be on all this toxic medical shit. And it's just life is better. And if life is better for you, you're gonna make life better for people around you. Beautifully said, brother. Thank you again so much. And I look forward to part two. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow the podcast on Apple and leave a review. It means a lot. We all have a path. And I'd love to hear how this podcast has inspired you in some way to live yours. <laughs>